transport them emotionally and stories can be from your life they can be stories that people know they can be about cultural events they can be about well-known celebrities or pop culture icons or sports stars but really understanding how to tell a story to make your point really is impactful and storytelling more than facts and logic will persuade people so learning to be a, a storyteller is fundamental and that can be a learned skill that can be Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Jason Harris. He's a co-founder, CEO of Mechanism award-winning agency that I've heard about for years from from my other friends who own agencies, best-selling author of uh, the book, The Soulful Art of Persuasion. You should all be going to amazon.com and buying right now or go to thesoulfulart.com. Jason, thanks for coming on this show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jess. I'm excited to be here. So maybe to begin with, I, I was actually reaching out to some other folks who own agencies to see what their questions were for you. So maybe we'll start there. And all then, right, uh, cool. I like got the book and stuff. Keep me on my toes um, with the competition. I like it. Right? Yeah. So the first one is just is just how you started and grew. Okay, sure. So I have, I have a really weird origin story, you know, from, I don't know if you always knew that you wanted to be like an investment finance guy. Did no, you? I wanted to be a pro snowboarder. Well, first I wanted to be a graphic, first I wanted to be a pro snowboarder, and then I wanted to be a graphic designer doing the art on snowboards, oh, and then sick. I became a dropout and... And uh, eventually ended up entrepreneur in finance. Go cool. well, That's good. Well, that's probably financially a better position for you to. Be. I don't know how much <laughs> you you can make designing Burton stickers, but you know who knows. It's so funny. I, I snowboard. I always I buy a lot of snow. Not a lot, but every like couple of years, I switch out my snowboards, and I always look for the ugliest graphic. <laughs> so like my current snowboard. I think it's an Endeavor. I don't know if you've heard of those guys. Yeah, of course. Endeavor snowboard. Yeah, it has like, Canadian pride right there. Yeah, right. It has like a guy holding a lantern on the back of it. It's like, I always look for like the weirdest underside graphics that I can find because I think they're interesting and someone had to think of what they wanted to put on a snowboard. So it's kind of interesting. Anyways, I love snowboarding. I'm doing my first trip with my kids first trip this season with my kids over new year's and it seems like a great covid sport because you're already wearing a mask and you're out, already outside right so yeah. this is not usually how we start interviews but i finally achieved my 14 year old boy dream and we built a house on the side of the mountain we're outside park city utah came down here from canada and so we can snowmobile out the backyard to like you know ten thousand foot elevation peaks like six miles away so if you come out here, take you on a backcountry day, we'll get some fresh powder on an extra snowmobile for you. Well, that's amazing. So you actually don't have to go to a ski ski slope ever. No, and I don't even have to trailer my sleds. We're we're allowed to ride them on the streets in this community, and it X's out into the uh, Uinta National Forest. Wow! So that's yeah, come good, come to Utah. That's go snowboard. Really, that's so dope. All right. So uh, that's the snowboarding. But my origin story was when I was 12 or 13, I would always check out the, the ads in between TV shows that I watched. And so uh, you know, I tell the story a lot because 
the brands I would, I would, it's before your time, but you know, Mikey likes it, Life Cereal. Does that sound you know, I grew up in Canada. So yeah, there's right. a bunch of American well, you know things cool, that I don't you know. know the Kool-Aid man? Yeah, of course, of course. All right. So like the Kool-Aid man and Lego My Ego and all the like breakfast cereals when I was watching like, you know, whatever dumb shows I was watching as a kid. I realized that someone was doing that for a living. So ever since I was a kid, I majored in economics for my parents just to do it. But I always knew I was going to go into advertising. And I realized at a pretty young age that someone makes those ads and that's a job. And so maybe like a lot of your listeners, I also knew I wanted to do my own thing. So I knew I had that entrepreneurial spirit sort of innately. And so when I got out of school, I worked at a bunch of different ad agencies and learned the trade from doing different parts of the business, like account management and a little bit of strategy and some new business. I started a production company at one point. So I learned like different facets of the business and I took the cultures that I worked and what I liked from those places to formulate how I wanted to create an agency. And I co-founded it with some other partners of mine. And, and that was sort of the, the genesis of, of my career. And that's how I got into it. And we've really just been pounding it out for 15 years, going through a lot of peaks and valleys. When we started, you know, we were like four or five people and then we just kind of grew it. We're in a hovering to around 200 with four offices now. And I wouldn't say now it's really any easier when you talk to your friends that have agencies, it's easier on one sense because there's scale and you're working with, with really big brands and you're not going project to project like you are when you're smaller. So in that sense, it's better. But then you also have like a whole machine you're running that you have to always feed. You know, you, you get an account, you might lose an account, you have to get another account. It's constantly putting coal into the, into the stove to make it run. And, you know, that's the nature of the business. There's, it's really exciting because you get to work on all different brands and learn, you know, the ice cream industry, the tequila industry, you know, how to how cleaning supplies. You learn a lot of different industries very quickly and you have to get really smart very quickly. And that's the exciting part about it. But as your friends at agencies will attest, it's also hyper competitive. It's uh, like a knife fight when you're pitching and, you know, they, uh, there's a lot of agencies out there. So clients can kind of call their shots in a lot of ways. And it's, it's really, it's fun, but it's also a sort of a never ending. There's no mailbox money in advertising. You know, there's no, like you're not, you're the product is the idea that you're selling ideas and ideas are services that are paid for, but we haven't cracked, maybe some agencies have, but we haven't cracked the ongoing, you know, there's no like software you're selling that is, you put the, it's a sunken cost and then you just keep making money from licensing. It's really like, you're only as good as your latest idea, which is yeah. kind of the, the, it cuts both ways. That's like the thrill of it. And that's the exhaustion of, that's the fatigue of it also. So, and, and let's just give some people some context. When you think about, you know, some of the biggest or most well-known brands that Mechanism has helped or what are some of the ones that come to mind? Uh, so we've been working on Peloton for over, you know, for, for four and a half years when we started working with them. They, they weren't very well-known. No one wanted to spend thousands of dollars for at-home fitness equipment. And we really helped build that brand with obviously Peloton built it. We helped do advertising for it. So we kind of, it was a good collaboration but that's one that is like a really, you know, popular story. Everyone knows Peloton now. Most people, you know, they're, they can't make enough. They're, they, they can't make enough to fill the orders. COVID kind of made that 
jump exponentially because everyone's at home. So that's one brand we built. We're working, you know, we tend to work on brands that are sort of insurgent brands or challenger brands that are trying to become famous faster, like a Peloton, or when we started working with method uh, cleaning products, when they were thought of as a target in-house brand and now, you know, method methods everywhere. We've been working with them for a long time. So we tend to work with brands like that, a brand called Frida that we started working with recently. So we do a lot of work with those types of brands. Okay. Cupid would be another one. Or we tend to work with really well-known brands that are looking to be more relevant. So a brand like Charles Schwab or Jose Cuervo, brands like that that are really established, but they will come to us and we'll try to add a little a spice or, or you know maybe even talk to a younger audience, make them a little more relevant. So those are the two types of brands we tend to work with. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, next question here. Any advice for agencies that are trying to make the trying to make the leap from small to big? Yeah, I would ask why they want to make the leap. And you know, I think there's there's a time when you can be a small boutique and do just as well by having fewer people and less overhead, or you know, you gain so much inertia once you start growing, you can't stop. Once you start growing, you have to keep growing. It's sort of the way I guess you don't have to, but it's sort of the way that it works as a, as a, we're still an independent shop. And once we decided to, to hit that button and try to grow, it was sort of full on. But I guess my advice would be when we started out, first of all, it takes time. So one advice is to have patience and realize that you're playing the long game and you have to wait it out and you have to be in it for a while because it's not always going to go just like the stock market. It's not going to go straight up. It's going to go up and dip and then up and dip. But over time, hopefully your, your trajectory is up. So you have to have patience would be one thing. Second thing is when, when we started, we would do a lot of free work. And so we would pitch proactively ideas to big brands like uh, a Microsoft or a Sega or you know other companies such as those that we had connections with, or we had some kind of foot in the door and we would pitch them ideas and we would either, you know, have them cover our production costs or keep it low, really low. So they kind of couldn't say no. And if it came out and they loved it, they could run it. And if it came out poorly, they could shelve it. But that helped us grow faster because, and it's been a long road, but that helps you grow because you have to have those proof points. You have to have other brands that brands want to keep the company of. And so if you have those brands that they, they're like, oh, you worked with, with those guys. Well, that makes me feel more secure handing over my business to you. Those proof points and those case studies are really critical. So for the first part, early on, we would just really try to build those case studies and work on getting those proof points so that we could go pitch business that was going to pay us. And, and, you know, there's no shame in that, you know, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great strategy. And how do you decide what RFPs you're going to, like, you're at that phase, you're like, you've got some big work, but you're not a giant agency yet. And you're trying to decide what are for, what RFPs to actually respond to or not. Any Any like wisdom on that? Yeah, I would say it's sort of like finance. You need to, for any good business, you need to have a really strong either, you know, CFO or VP of finance, somebody in that group that really can control the numbers. And it shouldn't be the CEO or the chief creative officer or someone like that. You need to, that's a position that's really important to invest in, uh, controlling the numbers. 
And I would say the same with new business. You need a new business manager. It doesn't have to be super, super senior person, but somebody who is living new business day in and day out. And what we've developed is, and it took a long time to do this, is a scorecard. And when work comes in, we have this sort of like 10-point grading system that we go through. And we will score the opportunity based on, you know, do we have a champion? Is there a good creative opportunity? Can this project lead to a retainer? Is it, is there a big, is it already for a lot of money to begin with? Do we have the resources to cover it? And so we would go down the list and give it a score. And then based on that score, we have a weekly sort of new business council that vets everything that comes in. And we, it's called go or no go, very simple name. And we decide based on the score, but the score gives us uh, the data to make a decision on versus I love this brand and, you know, they sponsor the soccer club that I love and I want, (laughs) I see it on their jersey, so I want to pitch it. It it takes the emotion out of it. And so we use a scorecard and then we, we have like a council meeting, if you will. And we make calls on what to, what to take and what not to take. And, you know, there's so much power in, in not putting resources on everything and not jumping at every opportunity, but the ones that you think you have a good chance on and that you really want to focus on those focus is really important. So this one isn't from a friend. This one's just for me. I, I end up doing a lot of I ended up doing a lot of like CEO coaching type work. It feels like, right? And you like on the uh, side? I think, yeah. So like could we own. So we own three companies. I've got a real estate investment trust. We're by big giant apartment buildings. I have a this media company. You know this show is from. And then uh, we have a consulting firm. So I've got like these like lean operational excellence guys that teach seminars. And we have like Delta Force and CIA guys that teach like wow, sales training, crazy. leadership training called? stuff. Greystoke Advisors. So you and have then, Greystoke Investments, Media, and Advisors. Yep. And okay. then on on that side, I've done a bunch of CEO coaching over the years because I have this really great CEO coach. And then I started doing it for my friends and then they wanted to pay me, blah, blah, blah. But I've had a number of agency owners and I consistent, consistently see a struggle of they want to bring on a new business person, but that person just can't seem to land clients without the founder, you know, CEO visionary. Yeah. Is that okay? Is it okay to like have the sales rep line things up and not have to close it themselves? Or what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, definitely. I think that, I think founder led companies, you can only really um, get business by having founders pitch it. And I think that is a hundred percent accurate. And you shouldn't fight against the tide. You know, you need to either have, unless, you know, you either have like someone super senior that has all those contacts and all those relationships, or you get someone mid-level that does a lot of the prep work and sets everything up and then works with the founders to close the business. But, you know, I still, I'd say a third of my job is pitching new business. And same with my, you know, I have two, two other partners that are creative CCO levels, they also are pitching business all the time. It's important. You have to balance that with love the one you're with and, you know, focusing on the clients you have, but you also need the the leaders of a company, especially companies that are founder led or independent or boutique in some nature. That's, that's how you're going to win it. You're going to win it by that, the, the leaders of the company pitching the business for sure. There's no way around it really. Okay. What do you think? Yeah, I kind of agree. I think that they just need better systems for everything except the pitch and have them show up for that part. They need to be duplicated in the rest of it. But I want want to talk about the book. I want to hear more about these 11 habits. And I want to talk about the challenger brand thing. So 
you know, like me, I'm, we're doing this investment fund thing. If we want to sell like boring, reliable, passive income to exciting people, right? That's our, like our that. deal. Okay. I like the twist. Yeah. So we want to be a challenger brand, you know, what if a, a boring cute, person wants it less exciting. Uh, Okay. You know, we're not going to tell them they can't buy it, but, yeah. but you know, I want to, I want to try and start a cult. I want to try and like do something that is like, Hey, if you hate accounting, this is the investment for you. We try and take care of all the problems. You literally only have to cash the check, you know, That's cool. but can you let's p- pick one of your 11 habits and let's talk about influence as a challenger brand. Okay, cool. So yeah, so there's, there's basically, I'll give you a quick overview, but there's 11 habits based on four principles. And so the first principle is this idea of, I'll break it down really simply. It's about being original, which is essentially, you know, Oscar Wilde's famous quote that everyone else has taken, you know, so you have to be yourself basically and and show your idiosyncrasies. And that's the founding layer, I think, of persuasion is the ability to be your your own original self. And that authenticity will take you really far. The second is this idea of generosity, trying to be a generous person, giving things away, whether it's time or advice or connections, not hoarding everything to yourself, but really being a generous person by nature. The third is being empathetic, which is understanding that collaborations win the day. And when you collaborate in business, that's when you make things happen, when people feel like they're part of it. And it's not both both for like employees and for clients and for consumers, this collaboration piece is really important. And then the fourth principle is soulful, which is all about being, you know, skilled and having, being inspiring, like trying to do things outside of yourself, do, playing bigger than just keeping your shareholders happy. If you're running a brand or if you're running a company, keeping your partners happy and your wallet happy and your bank account happy and doing things only for for yourself, but it's thinking outside of yourself and being, that makes you inspirational and that makes you more persuasive overall. So those are the four principles. And then I have, you know, habits basically that can be learned underneath those principles. So if you want me to take any one of them, you want me to take like just any? Yeah, let's start with original. Okay, so original, one big part under original is learning to be a great storyteller. So to be original and to be yourself and to be persuasive, storytelling is a, is a really important component of it. And I think the idea of, you know, if you want to make your point of view real to an audience or to someone else, you need to be able to transport them emotionally. And stories can be from your life. They can be stories that people know. They can be about cultural events. They can be about well-known celebrities or pop culture icons or sports stars but really understanding how to tell a story to make your point really is impactful. And storytelling more than facts and logic will persuade people. So learning to be a, a storyteller is fundamental. And that can be a learned skill. That could be a habit. If you practice it over and over, you will get good at it. And you know, one easy way is to always have a notebook and to write down stories that you have and try to replay those stories and try to memorize you know, the first and last line of your story. And, you know, you just have a handful that you can pull from and it's important so that you don't have to always uh, come up with a story spur of the moment, but you kind of have these in the back of your mind. So yeah, that's, that's one example. You know, my, I think my first question for that is, and I know we're, we're running up on time for part one of the interview here. So maybe this will be a good last question is, you know, storytelling gets talked about so much. There's so many books about storytelling and yeah. pitches and videos and, you know, 
And yet, for as much as we're told to do it, there's those people who have really mastered the craft. And it's so different when they tell their stories or, you know, the videos that come out from the people who have really spent the hours and the meaningful repetitions on their storytelling. I mean, those are, I mean, you, you remember ads from when you were a little kid. I remember ads from when I was a kid, right? We've, we've all got those YouTube videos or something that we can't get out of our head. Like there's some, there's certain storytellers that create an emotional resonance that you can't forget if you tried. And yet we're all told to be storytellers and there's so few that get there. What, what do you think sets those people apart? What are they practicing? What are the, what are the hours they're putting in that maybe the rest of us aren't? Well, some, some people are natural born storytellers and some of these principles people are just natural at them so for me i've always been a pretty for example empathetic person i've always been a collaborator i've always had that eq where i can feel when um something needs to be addressed or how to how to bring people over or make it sort of us versus i you know or we versus me and so that's something that came natural to me being generous, for example, did not. I had to really learn how to be a generous person because that was not innate in who I am. I had to, that is a habit I had to learn. Storytelling is the same thing. Some people are born with that ability to just, you know, spin a tale and to tell a story and to be at the table and get everyone enthralled with what they're saying. Most of us have to practice it. It's an art. You have to learn it. And you don't have to be expert level to use storytelling to your advantage. You just have to be able to know stories or things in your memory that made an impact on you that you can retell or why that's your favorite book or why that's your favorite movie. And what's the lesson that you can glean from that, that you can pass on at the right time. You don't have to be, you know, the most amazing storyteller on the planet for this to be effective. But why are people, why are some people next level storytellers? I would probably say, you know, they were born that way. They were, they were born that way. And maybe they kept practicing, even though they were born with some innate talent, but all of us have the ability to be more than proficient at it. And, and, and it just takes, you know, repetition and memorizing and practice and not trying to do it fast on your feet because that's that is a hard thing to do and those i think those expert level storytellers can actually just do it they can just start talking and pull a story out most of us can't do that well everybody go to the soulfulart.com get your copy of the book uh, maybe to end this episode jason what's what's a story you can tell us about the book a story that i can tell you about the book or a story within well, the book yes yeah, either sure. one well it took me it took me it took me three years to write, and it was in, immensely challenging. But I'll you know I'll tell you I'll tell you a story from the book that is about collaboration, and this is a story a mechanism story too. So maybe that'll be interesting for your audience. But early on, when we were starting Mechanism, my partner Tommy Means and I had the opportunity to pitch Disney parks and resorts, and you know who the Imagineers are? Yes, yeah, just so, a bit. Okay, so the Imagineers come up with the rides and they're sort of like the creative engine behind Disney parks. And we had the opportunity to pitch uh, a campaign to the head of the parks and resorts. This guy, Jay Rizzullo, who's now, I think, you know, became like the VP of all of Disney and he's, he's big up there, but we, we went into pitch. We had this idea called the Imagineers. We were, we, we want to have a partnership with Scholastic and make comic books about the Imagineers. We create, we went to farmed out to China to make these, 
figurines of the Imagineers. And we were basically going to bring the Imagineers to kids' rooms everywhere and have them be almost like superheroes. And there was Rock and Block, who were the big guys that were make the parks. There was Spark, who had a spark plug on his head, and he would come up with all the ideas for, for the rides. There was Fable, who would write the story. He had a long sketch pad. They sort of were like robotic in a way. So we had this crazy idea, this great idea. We went in and pitched it, got to the highest levels of Disney. And when Jay Rizzullo said, I love it. This is brilliant. I just have one comment. I don't like the way the characters look. And I thought in my head, oh, that's no problem. Like, we'll just tell him. We'll just change the characters. Like, who knows characters more than Disney? We're like a small ad agency. We don't know characters like Disney does. And I saw my partner across the table, Tommy, trying to cut in. And I tried to reach my leg under the table to kick him so he wouldn't say anything. But what came out of his mouth was... These are the characters we designed them. And it's, it's kind of like, take it or leave it. Like, this is what we have in mind. And if you don't like it, you know, and with that, the, the, the VP, you know, the head guy got up and, and walked out in a huff and all of his assistants followed behind him. And we didn't get the gig. And at the time that was a lot of money for us. And we really needed the business. And we, you know, we cracked open a bottle of vodka after, after the pitch and tried to break down what went wrong. And the thing we realized is, we hadn't anticipated or prepped for any questions during that setup for the pitch. And the story is that preparation can either kill or make a deal. And you really have to be prepared for what comes at you during those key moments of business. And we were not prepared. We did not collaborate. We just thought we had this thing on lock and it was a great idea. But by answering the questions incorrectly, we lost, we lost millions of dollars. And it was a sad day for the company, but it was a priceless lesson. So that's my Disney story. No, that's awesome. Okay, everybody, <laughs> tune back in for part two. Thanks so much.